Um, Dr. Williams entitles the chapter, chapter 9 in his book uh, here, Lamentations uh, chapter 2, just the first 10 verses. He entitles it, A City in the Hands of an Angry God. That should sound familiar because it's a play on um, uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. One of the things that Dr. Williams points out in his introduction to the book is that, uh, and you'll hear this as I read it here in a moment, but here we have, I'm going to quote him, he says, the most vivid and um, fearsome depiction of God's wrath. He's a very vivid description of God's wrath, and what is more, it's directed at his own people. So that's why he's entitled it, A City in the Hands of an, of an Angry God. So let's, let's give our careful attention uh, to God's word. Again, we're going to begin our time this morning looking at verses 1 through 10. And so let's read those verses right now. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all who were delightful in, his, in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying he caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. We're pausing there, and Lord willing, we'll get to see some of the further, uh, uh, the, the more positive sides of this lament as we go on. But 
Let's begin right now. What observations do you make as we are looking at verses 1 through 10? What sticks out to you? What struck you as we read? What questions do you have? Verses 1 through 10. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. How she poured out her value on this feast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Protected and accepted her worship for yep. um, adoration of which, where she came from, much like where Israel would come from. Yeah. You paint a picture, and I kind of, kind of wonder if anyone at the time thought of it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, the, the language of his footstool also communicates something, right? It, he still owns it. It's still his, right? What else? Yeah? I feel like you were emphasizing the word light. I did, yes. I think everyone talked about assimilate. Yep. I'm not saying God has become their enemy or right. their enemy. He's like an enemy. Yes. Which knows something of the fact that he's not, he's not saying he does hate them or is their enemy. Yes, and we're going to explore that in greater detail here in a few moments, but that was, yes, that's very true. We need to see that word like an enemy, like a foe. Uh, there is a very important reason why it's a simile here and not a metaphor. He is not, he is not their enemy. He is like an enemy, and so we'll talk more about that in a few moments. What else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He stripped off all the, the crust and all yep. the, all the, um, you know, the, the world of what's happening. Yep. It isn't just an end. Yeah, right. There's a purpose in it. Yep. That's right. Go ahead. Yeah. They are an acknowledgment that Jerusalem's adversity has come from him, that his chastisement is to be feared, and that even the hardest providences are not outside of his sovereign control. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to read that again, um, uh, partly because somebody reached out to me who's watching these, and when I, I'm gonna, I want to reemphasize just what you said here. Um, so this is on page 58 from Dr. Williams' book. God's righteous chastisement is praiseworthy. Even if we find ourselves the ones being chastened, these verses are not an accusation against God's severity. They are an acknowledgement that Jerusalem's adversity had come from him, that his chastisement is to be feared, and that even the hardest providences are not outside of his sovereign control. I, he goes on, but of course, poetry is much more than a vehicle for the theology. It is meant to impact our hearts at the deepest spiritual level. Uh, on that note, look at the text. Look at some of the descriptions that uh, are given here in the text as in terms of what God is doing. 
look at the text and just throw them out there. What are the verbs used to describe what God is doing here in Jerusalem? Cast down their splendor. Cast down. What else? Swallowed up. Swallowed up. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Yep. The first, so that CJ tends to break up these chapters in three parts, and the first idea that he he brings us to in his book, in looking at these three or these ten verses, is he, he entitles it "The Hidden Hand of God." In the first poem, the descri- the, the the destruction of Jerusalem is just kind of described as an outward observer but now in the second poem the observer is saying god did it right he is making it very clear that this is the hand of god again we ended last week saying uh or one of the things we talked about was god's sovereignty and man's response responsibility yes uh, the babylonians will be held responsible for their destruction this destruction that they brought upon jerusalem but god and that's what's emphasized here god is the one who did it uh, dr williams also said this in making note that this is that as we see this that this is what god has done he says the flood waters of wrath water the seeds of covenant renewal the flood waters of wrath water the seeds of covenant renewal and so even as we see that this is coming from god's hand by faith we need to trust that this is our father that he is good and that he has good purposes he has renewal intended in this let's go on and consider that idea Uh, that Bryant highlighted for us. Verse 4, He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He says it again at the beginning of verse 5, The Lord has become like an enemy. In his book, Dr. Williams highlights this and says, um, I mean, the title of the section is Like an Enemy. What is the significance of that word like? And it is very, very significant. If you've got the book, you can turn to page 60 because that's where he begins in this. Um, But go ahead and turn in your Bibles right now to, um, let's see, uh, Psalm 23.1. You probably don't need to turn there. You can probably tell me what it says. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. It does not say the Lord is like a shepherd, okay? Uh, Psalm 46, one, you probably don't need to turn there. What does it say? The Lord is our refuge and strength. Not like our refuge and strength. He is our refuge and strength. Uh, Psalm 32, 7, God is our hiding place. Not like our hiding place. He is our hiding place. All of the positive, we might say, metaphors used in scripture are given to us in metaphoric language he is these things what are some of the other metaphors that god gives us to help us understand who he is so metaphor does not use like or as simile like or as right so what are some of the other metaphors that god uses to describe himself he is a father what else is he 
Refuge. I heard another one. Fortress. Say it. Fortress. Rock. Rock. Our, shield. Our shield. At the same time, good job. <laughs> Our, comfort. Our comfort, yes. Husband. Husband, yep. Savior. On and on. There's so many of them. There are a few places where God is described like something. Okay? This is one of them. Okay? And what Dr. Williams argues in his book is that is very intentional, and we need to notice it, because this is not God's preferred way to be oriented toward his people. And he's making a very clear distinction that he is only like an enemy at this point. He is like a foe. Okay? Uh, let me see if I've got the text referenced here. Uh, Deuteronomy 38. You can turn with me if you'd like to. De Deuteronomy 38. Whoops, there is no 38. What did I write? Thank you, it is. Verse 41. And mine says, if I sharpen my, uh, my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me what's not there is the word like in that way God is not like an enemy he is an enemy but who is he talking about in Deuteronomy versus uh, what he's talking about in Lamentations 2 well the difference is in Deuteronomy he's talking about those who are not his in Lamentations 2 he is talking about those who are his. And so Dr. Williams says God's preferred posture is not this like an enemy, like a foe. This is extraordinary. It is rare that God postures himself toward his people in this way. And that's why he's very careful to make that distinction. I am like an enemy. I am like a foe. But he is not an enemy, and he is not a foe. That word here is very, very important. Uh, what is some of the language of scripture that helps us understand that even if we are facing something like this, broadly as the church or maybe even as individuals, what is some of the language of scripture that helps us remember who God is? Really, how, how can we hide ourselves in who God is even if we are facing affliction that we know comes from his hands? What are important things for us to remember during that time? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yeah, Hebrews 12 is a classic place to go to with this, right? Um, the, the discipline of God is to be understood in the context of a father to his children. A father disciplines the child whom he loves. He doesn't go and discipline other people's children. And so if you don't belong to God, you won't receive his hand of discipline in your life. And so when the church, 
and members of the church experience this kind of thing, one of the metaphors we need to use is God is my father, and his discipline is always good. What does Hebrews 12 say it produces? The peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And that actually ties into what you were saying earlier, Jacques, as far as they're sitting there in Jerusalem. They're not running, right? They're saying this comes from God. Lord, let it do its work in our lives. Questions, comments? Let me pause here. Go ahead. Oh, I see a couple hands. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But God. Yeah. All this bad stuff, but God and how he will accomplish what he has yeah. to do. Yeah. And that's, all of this is anticipating that, right? God is doing something to, to glorify his name and to do good for all of his people. So we're, we're coming to that in the text. Go ahead. That's right. Not from his heart. I love that distinction. Yep. Yep. That's Thank you. Lamentations 333. <laughs> How fitting, huh? Yep. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. Yeah, that is wonderful. That is very good. We're going to go on here in a moment to consider the cost of correction, uh, God's fatherly discipline, the cost to us, the cost to him, and all of that. But why, why is it that God reveals himself this way to us in his word? You know, what are some of the takeaways for us at this point in the text? Um, what does it mean for us today to receive the affliction that God might bring upon his church? Mm-hmm. Uh, we might, for a season, be able to get away with some sin in some particular area, but um, God will not, his word is telling us he will not allow that to go throughout our whole lives. We will confront that through various different means. Yep. Um, so, in one sense, it's, it's a warning not to continue in that sin. Sure, yep. He who began a good work in you will carry it out. Yeah, yep. You are not, you're not, uh, you're not, um, your continuation in Christ is not contingent upon your strength, right? It's his. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. The, I, I don't know the exact language here, but I wrote myself a little note. In Dr. Williams' book, he says we need to remember the slow slide into sin. He says it begins with procrastination, like uh, I'll, I'll obey later or I'll get to that. And then it continues to cultivate a, an apathy within us, and then eventually that becomes an outright defiance, right? And I think we can think of that both individually, but also as the church, right? That it becomes a, uh, or it often begins with a procrastination, becomes apathy, and then it becomes defiance. And then to tie it together with what Nikki was saying, one of the things that this reflecting on this encourages me about is that the Lord Jesus is the one who promises to build his church. Uh, and, and right now, if we look at the state of the church in the world, there's some very discouraging things, right? Jesus prayed that, they, that we might be one, right? And, and I, we see a lot of the reflections of a um, ransacked Jerusalem in the state of the church today. We see that. And yet we know that, that the Lord Jesus is the one who is able to care for his church and to bring about the perfect circumstances to accomplish his will today. So, so at, the, at the very least, we can hide ourselves knowing that he is sovereign and that he will bring it about. All right, let's uh, finish our thoughts on verses 1 or our consideration of verses 1 through 10 right now. Uh, the final idea that Dr. Williams brings out in his book is the cost of correction. There's a play on words there when he's talking about the cost of correction. And he uses the analogy of a parent disciplining a child. Does, it, does the child find discipline costly? Yes. Does a parent, does a good parent find the discipline costly? Yes. And that's what Dr. Williams wants to bring out in the, in the final consideration. Um, he highlights things like verse 1, this is his footstool. Verse 6, he has laid waste his booth, his meeting place, right? He, these, are, these are the people that he loves. He loves Jerusalem. These are his, and yet he's disciplining them. And so he's not disciplining, he's not destroying as if an enemy or as if one who is far off bringing destruction on something he does not care about. But he is disciplining Jerusalem as the one who loves the gates of Jerusalem, right? And so we get to see uh, the cost uh, to God even in this. Um, let's look at Psalm 49. I'm going to start reading at verse 7, but focus on verse 8. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 6 tells, says, you were bought with a price. And all of that is here in the background. The destruction of Jerusalem, the chastisement that God brings on his people is temporary. Right? This is not, uh, this is not wrath, eternal wrath for sins, right? This is a temporary chastisement meant for the good of his people, and, and he's bringing this costly correction upon them, but he is going to come in his son to endure all of God's wrath for his people. Look at Psalm 103. And this is one of those texts that should always be in our minds when we experience any, any sort of chastisement from the Lord. Um, verses 8 and 9, uh, including 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Thoughts or questions there on those verses before we move on? Either Psalm 103 or Lamentations 2. Go ahead. Yeah, and that's what we saw in the first uh, poem as well, right? Uh, those things which they had neglected and taken for granted were the precious things that had been taken from them. Go ahead. Yeah, and that, you know this suffering does. In, I mean, it, it in a small way foreshadows that, right? Uh, Doctor, oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Ken. Sure. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yep. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yeah, good. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
That, yeah, that's a good note because, it, it, you know, it's, it's very easy or, or it is a temptation to turn to the externals or to rely upon the externals, right? My church membership, you know, or, or things like that. No, no, no. It's always the thing anticipated or the substance being Christ himself. So you're right. Each of those things, it's empty to trust in them. They needed to go to what they were ultimately about. Let's go ahead and look at verses 11 through 14 then. And let me, let me read those for us. It says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what, can, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. What do you notice there in those few verses? And then um, the children are asking where is that bread and wine, and it reminds me of the table. And the, the feeling that we see for Jesus is just What else? first thing that Dr. Williams highlights is he, he, uh, he titles it in his book, Driven to Tears. And we have this switch now to that singular speaker here in verses 11, 12, and 13. We have this compassionate witness who's also a counselor to the people. Um, he's driven, I mean, th this is one who is weeping over the state of Jerusalem which should invoke, you know, Christ coming and weeping over Jerusalem. This is what this is anticipating here. These are my people that he says there in verse 11. Uh, one of the things that we ought to see in this is the connection between the Lord and his love for us as his people. That even when this chastisement happens, it is costly to him too, right? His heart is broken over the state of his people. Um, one of the things that Dr. Williams highlights with the end of verse 11 is the unforeseen consequences of sin. No one in Jerusalem thought that their sins would lead to the fact that infants and babies are fainting in the streets of the city. And we might even think about connections with that in the, the state of the church in the world today. I think there are many unforeseen uh, consequences of the church's neglect 
right? The church is uh, leaving off of their po our post in this world, unforeseen consequences that maybe we could have kept at bay. So look at verse 13, because it ends with a very important question. He says, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Let's turn in our Bibles uh, to Jeremiah. We're going to do uh, chapter 3 first, then 30, then 33. This counselor, this witness, is speaking to them and asking an important question. Who can heal you? And it's not a question that has been unanswered. Jeremiah 3, verse 22. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Turn to chapter 30. Verse 17. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking to Israel and of Israel and Judah. For I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. And then 33 verse 6. Behold, I will bring it. Bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. So that question is a very important textual uh, question. Who will heal you is not a question that's being asked for the first time. That idea is not being brought up for the first time here in Lamentations, but instead the prophet Jeremiah has brought it up to the people of God time and time again. Uh, Dr. Williams uses the language of here, the, the one asking these, this question is taking them to what they already know. And uh, that's a refrain we hear, we hear throughout Scripture, we hear throughout the New Testament that, like, what is it that the people of God need? They need the gospel. They need the promise of God. They need the, the very way that we begin walking in Christ is the very way that we continue to walk in Christ. We need the gospel. Let's look at verse 14. After asking that question, who can heal you with We've just considered the answers. He raises the, this issue. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. What's going on here? Yes. Yep. 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 When I think of a true, true effort 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's how that build a home gets you into the frame of those anonymous that we can see mm -hmm. um, these spots and difficulties that we can have all around them and it can be beautiful to be born in these places. Yeah. And yep. Here's what go ahead. So on other hand. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Here, here's what uh, Dr. Williams references uh, in his book. It's Jeremiah 5, the end of the chapter, ver verse 30 and 31 says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened to the land. What's that? The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will, what will you do when the end comes? This is, as uh, Nikki was talking about, uh, God calling out those prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. What sort of implications does this have for the church in the world? Can you think of any New Testament texts which talk about this kind of ongoing problem that will be uh, a temptation to the church in the world till Christ returns? Yes. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yep. And uh, you can all probably think, without me mentioning even a name, you can think of obvious uh, false teachers, you know, Christian pastors who have nothing but a message of all is well. Right, all is well, and there's never any anything going on like what we have here. There is no exposing of your iniquity to restore your fortunes. Right, there's no actually bringing the word of God to bear upon these people where where it exposes sin for the positive reason of this is actually for your good. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, go ahead. And it's also reminiscent of Psalm 32, when David talks yeah. about being silent and his bones wasted away. Yep. And only by confessing his sin. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, that, that really highlights um, the gift of true gospel, of the gospel, right? It, it breaks our hearts. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And what a blessing it is when the word of God is used in that way to break our hearts and to bring us to that place of repentance. That's where joy is. And that's, you know, what the word of God is here saying is, is how abominable it is when the, the prophets and the teachers are the ones who steal this from God's people because they're unwilling to go there. Good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Yep. We are we are basically out of time. We've got thirty seconds left. Uh, where where this goes, we won't have time to jump into all of it. But like uh, lamentations, these laments often reflect some of the psalms and where we're going. So the final f- few verses, which we'll pick up with Lord willing next week, are uh, um, uh, they provide us with all of the hope. Um, that we need here. Uh, Verses 18 and 19, um, uh, let me just read them for you. Uh, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the end of the street. Look, O Lord, and see. It's going to return to that same theme that if we will only cry out, out of being brought low, God will restore. It's always in the context of that hope. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to conform us, uh, that you would renew our minds so that we would no longer be conformed to this world. Please bless us as we continue to think on these things. And uh, Lord God, we pray that you might bless us as your people. Uh, We are not unlike Jerusalem and Judah during this time. Uh, We go and wander off in various ways. We compromise in various ways. And so we pray uh, that we would not be looking back at just a historical event, but rather that we would use your word as a mirror and that we would desire what is here anticipated in your word, that broken and contrite heart that you do not despise. Lord, we ask that you would give that to us uh, because we know that there is a far greater joy found in that place of being hidden in Christ, rather than in that place of the false prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Give us that true joy in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have children in the back, the reminder is, go check them out. Go pick them up.